Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, good morning, y'all. How we doing? Um, did anybody get to see the OSU game, Buckeye game yesterday? Anybody? I uh, didn't go, but I got stuck in the traffic. So it's a good, good Saturday for me. Um, I want to start off today uh, with a little story. You may have heard it before. It's called The Drowning Man. One day, a man was stuck on his rooftop because of a, a flood, and he was praying to God for God to help him. Soon after, a man in a rowboat came by and shouted to the man, Come, I can save you. Jump in the boat and we'll row away. The stranded man on the roof said, No, it's okay. I'm all right. I'm praying to God. He's going to save me. So the rowboat uh, rowed off, and then a motorboat came by later, and he said, Jump in. I can save you. We can, we, uh, the boat can take us out of here, and you'll be okay. And the, the man said, No, no, thanks. I'm praying to God, and he is going to save me. I have faith. So the motorboat went on, and then finally a helicopter came by, and it was floating above, or it was, it was flying above the, the house, and it says, grab onto the rope, and I'll take you to safety. And the stranded man once again said, no thanks. I'm praying to God. He's going to save me. I have faith. So the helicopter reluctantly flew away. Soon after, the water rose above the rooftop, and the man drowned, and he died. And when he went to heaven, he got a chance to discuss the whole situation with God, at which point he yelled at God, I had faith in you, but you didn't save me. You let me drown, and I don't understand why. To this, God replied, and I'll add, you idiot. I sent you a rowboat, a motorboat, and a helicopter. What more did you expect? I know you've heard that story before. If you haven't, it it just really brings to mind the sobering reality of two things. One is, uh, is basically just how blatantly blind we can be to what God is doing in our lives. And the second thing is how specific and narrow-minded we can be in the midst of that, meaning that we, we think in our own pride and ego that God must show up in a certain way, otherwise he's not real or he's not listening to us or he doesn't do what we should want him to do. And at the end of the day, should God really just always do what you want to do? Because that makes you God. So I love this story because this is kind of setting the, the climate for what we're going to talk about today. If you looked in your Bibles, we're, we're basically reading two passages, and they're, they're really, I wouldn't say they're contrasting, but they're two different ways that people miss Jesus and his kingdom and what he's all about. And if you notice, we're in chapter 16. So we've seen a lot of Jesus. We've been going through this for almost a year. And at this point now, I think it, it, you would think it'd be pretty obvious who this Jesus guy is and what he's here to do. And the section that we're in right now is called the Upside Down Kingdom. And what that basically is, is Jesus had spent teachings talking about how his kingdom was not of this world and how it, it really responded completely different to the world. We have the kingdom of the world, which is built on success and pride and influence and comfort and all these things. And then Jesus has his own kingdom, which is just completely the opposite, right? It's built on sacrifice and self-giving love and forgiveness and loving our enemies and all these type of things. And really what it is, is they're completely flipped upside down. Jesus' kingdom is the world as we know it flipped completely upside down. Whether it's wealth, whether it's power structures, whether it's really just the way that we even think about life. And as he's, as he's reminding everybody and kind of showing them what this looks like through healings and miracles and all this type of stuff, he's still teaching about it, and a lot of people are, are very much misunderstanding what that looks like. 
And you're going to get to realize that you can probably absorb yourself into part of this story today as we read it. So let's start with the first, uh, group, the first little passage in a group of people. Verse 1. Now when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test Jesus, they asked him to show a sign uh, from heaven. Now if you've been following along, okay, and you, you're like, wait a second, I think we read this passage in week 39, uh, if you've been keeping track. Uh, we basically did. There's, there is another passage earlier in Matthew, and they are almost exactly identical. This happens twice in the Gospel of Matthew. The only really big difference is that in that one, it was the Pharisees and the scribes. In this one, it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, I know like when you read the Bible, you, you, you probably lump all of them together, like right? chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Like, you're like, they're just like smart Jesus people that don't like him but like are Jewish and are trying to figure this all out, right? And you, Typically, they're the antagonists, and they're bothering Jesus, and they don't like Jesus. But it's actually really unique that these two groups are here. We've been, uh, we've been going through different maps because we love maps, right? And uh, maps are important because none of you grew up, as far as I know, in Galilee or Jerusalem or any of those cities uh, where all this is taking place. But any, any Jewish listener to the Gospel of Matthew would know all these cities and what's going on and why they're going there, why they wouldn't, and the people there. And what's really important is these Pharisees and Sadducees, we know, have traveled all the way from Jerusalem to basically just wait for Jesus to screw up or to do something that was provocative to which they could turn the tables and either get him killed or arrest him. That was their goal. But what's really funny is these two, these two parties never associated with each other. They hated each other. It would be like Republicans and Democrats getting together for the common cause of something really, really evil, more evil than them, right? And they hated each other, not only because they were fighting against kind of the same uh, social climate and influence, but mainly because they just had completely different views on things. So a Pharisee would be typically a really well-educated, kind of self-made man, meaning he was like a merchant or some sort. And, and basically, he'd be like the example of like, you start, a tech, start up at 20, you get so rich, you retire at 30, and you're like, I'm going to go to seminary for a few years. Why not? I don't have to work. Like, why not? Just keep growing my influence and all these dreams. And that's a Pharisee. Sadducees were more like old money, meaning... They were like, my parents went to Harvard, I get to go to Harvard, I take over my dad's company, I'm just rich my whole life, right? And so they, they, they won, they hated each other like, because of just the differences in the way that they came about and the way of thinking, but the main thing was just their differences on how they interpreted the Bible. Or in this case, it'd just be the Old Testament, right? <laughs> but they, uh, the Pharisees were much more literal, and that's why a lot of times when Jesus runs into a religious leader and they're being very legalistic, it's typically the Pharisees, they took the law, and they were the interpreters of the law. And not only that, but then they built another safeguard of laws around the law so they just be extra careful to the point where it just sucked the life out of the whole point of the law. The Sadducees were a little bit different. They didn't necessarily believe in demons or angels or heaven or hell, really. They were a lot more like, this is our life. We were supposed to honor Yahweh. And they were way more loose about, certain, about things. So they, they hate each other. They disagreed. But you know what? They both hated Jesus more than they hated each other. And so they travel up from Jerusalem, and they're just trying to just, honestly, they're desperate. Like, anything they can get to, to turn Jesus against the crowds or the people, they're trying, and it does not go very well. And uh, Jesus is not having it. And it's funny, because he's not having it for the second time, because a very similar thing happened a few chapters before. If we look at his response in verse 2, the story is also told in uh, Mark, in, in, the, in the Gospel of Mark, and in chapter 8, and at the beginning of Mark's uh, description of what he says, 
He says that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit before he said what we're about to read. And I'm just like, oh, like that's, that's just helps you realize, like, God, Jesus is just like, gosh, these people are just the worst. <laughs> Come on, right? And he says to them in verse 2, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today because the sky is red and darkening. You know how to judge correctly the appearance of the sky, but you cannot evaluate the signs of the times. Now, Jesus is being a little bit cryptic here um, to us, but really, really what he's doing is he's using weather, which he's used weather illustrations before. But if you read this closely, you're, you might be confused because you're like, wait a second. He's comparing two of the exact same weather patterns, right? The sky is red, you'll know this. The sky is red, you'll know this. And you're like, wait, the sky is red both times. How do they know? But in this culture, you know, it was not like on your watch, you just click on the weather and you're like, it's going to rain. You're like, no, no, you had to know by the clouds. So our weathermen today and women would not, would be put out of job based on first century Jews and Gentiles. They were so good at reading the weather because they had to. It was an agrarian society. You had to know when it was going to rain, when it was going to storm. You don't want to get your sheep stuck in a hole because that happened more than you'd think. And so you'd know if it was going to storm or mudslide, all that stuff. Anyway, so they knew the weather really well, and they were really good at interpreting basically the same external appearance, but know what was going to happen after because they had been so inundated in that and, and needed to know, right? They needed, in order to like live, for lack of better words, in order to live, they had to know what that meant when and the timing and everything like that. And Jesus is saying, you know the difference between the same red sky depending on the time and, and other, other circumstances like winds and things like that, but yet you cannot see that I am here now and am pointing to the true signs of the times, which is the Messiah to come, that God with us, Yahweh Emmanuel, is here now and is fulfilling all of the prophecies that these religious leaders know by heart. So the question is not necessarily... Do they know the prophecies and what it'll be like to fulfill them? The, the question is far deeper of what is keeping you from recognizing this when you can recognize other things around you? You clearly have discernment about the weather. Why are you not having discernment about me now? And so he's saying you think you need a sign, but you really don't. And you're asking and demanding for a sign. You are revealing some, something much more about the sign itself. You're revealing something about your heart. And we know, like, if, I mean, we're in chapter 16 here. Jesus has done some pretty crazy stuff, right? And they've seen it, heard about it, all of that, right? He's done miraculous things. They don't need another sign. And even several chapters ago when they said, when the, scri the scribes and the Pharisees said, we need a sign, it's the same sort of issue. It's not actually about the sign itself. It's about their heart and the blindness to their own pursuit of their own kingdom and their own priorities and their own pride. I think there's no better way to describe this than the wonderful 1980s movie, Caddyshack. If you've seen Caddyshack, I think it's Bill Murray's best movie. Uh, he is, Bill Murray is a, is a groundskeeper, uh, and he, his name is Carl, which just makes it that much better. Um, and there's this little scene in the movie that has nothing to do with the rest of the movie uh, that I just, I thought about, and it was such a good uh, illustration for this. There's this small scene where this bishop is, is going to go out, and he's trying to squeeze in... Uh, some golf before the storm comes and Carl's just like standing there and he, the guy just assumes he's a caddy and he's like, come on, I'm going to go play golf and so Carl just takes his clubs and is his caddy and he's golfing and all of a sudden the storm starts to pick up, it starts to rain, the winds are violent and he just keeps going and he's playing really well. Like, he's, he's like, I might even break the course record and so he, meanwhile he's like praising God, right? He's like, the Lord has anointed me. Like, he's like using God, right, to describe, well, clearly God's with me. I'm, I'm doing really well and it's storming. 
But it gets to the point where the storm keeps getting worse and worse. And all of a sudden, all of the people are heading into the clubhouse. The ranger or one of the golf pros comes over to him. And he's like, hey, like, you better head in. Like, the storm's getting really bad. We need to wait this one out. But he is so inundated in his, his own success, his own trajectory, that he ignores this guy who, and all the people who know like, the storm is getting worse. So what does he do? He turns to Carl, and he says, Carl, what do you think? Should I stop playing? And Carl's like, well, it's not the, not the worst of it yet. I think, I think the worst is not here yet. And, and, that, and then he listens to Carl, and, and it just keeps storming, getting worse, to the point where they're like basically playing in a hurricane. And I think it's fitting to think about that little piece, because a few weeks ago, Jesus had said, the blind will, will guide the blind into a hole, right? They're both blind. They'll both fall into it together. This is a classic illustration. Don't ever trust Carl or anything he says. If you've watched the movie, he's a little bit off. Um, but they keep playing to the point where he's on like one of his last holes. It's lightning and thundering or whatever. And he's playing really well. And he misses a putt. And he basically curses God. And he gets struck down by lightning and he dies. And then Carl's like, you know, tiptoes away. <laughs> and, and then the scene's over. And then the rest of the movie goes on. It's like, it's really just this random little like mini, mini, mini story in the, the movie. But what I love about that, what resonates toward the, the mindset of the Pharisees is that like the signs of the times are here and they knew it. They knew the answers, but their hearts were so consumed about where they wanted to go, the trajectory they wanted. And to be, to be honest, they didn't want to lose what they had. And the bishop, in the same way, was like, forget the rain, forget the lightning, forget the thunder, forget the falling trees, forget the flooding. I'm playing well, so I'm going to keep playing. Surely the Lord will keep blessing me, right? I'd rather, I'd rather keep going in my own ignorance than acknowledge all of the other signs around me. And so he's like, look, Another sign is not going to change anything. And I know your hearts, and you want to test me, and it's not going to happen. And so then he says, the only sign basically I'll give you, and he uses the same sign in this one as he uses in the first one, as he says in verse 4, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Adulterous is the idea of that they're choosing idols over God, right? They're, they're committing an affair with other idols and not God. They're not staying in a relationship with God. They ask for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, and then he walks away. Now, if you remember, I'm going to give you a little review of, of week 39. If you weren't there, you don't remember. He uses the sign of Jonah for a very specific reason. If you know the story of Jonah, Jonah, it, Jonah was a prophet, and uh, he was called by God to go to Nineveh to preach the good news, which at that point wasn't Jesus, but it was just repent, right? God is here and repent. Turn away from your evil ways. And Jonah's like, no, nah, I don't want to go there. I don't like that city. That'd be like going to a really sketchy area in Las Vegas at night with your wallet in your hand like this, right? You're like, I'm not going to walk out of this with my wallet. And that was how Nineveh was. If, if they didn't like the message, they'd just kill you, right? It was very well known. Prophets were not treated well. And so he's like, I'm going to go to Tarshish, right? I'm going to go to San Diego. Everybody there's nice. The weather's good. No one will hurt me, right? No one will take my wallet in San Diego. I've actually never been. I've just heard only good things, so I don't know. Maybe you could prove me wrong later, but... He's like, I'm going to go to San Diego. And God's like, no, you're not. And on the way, uh, the storm hits, and they throw him off the ship. He gets swallowed by a fish or a whale, and he's in the belly of that fish for three days. Then he, gets, then he re re repents. He says this song and prayer before God, and the fish spits him out, and then he goes to Nineveh. And what happens in Nineveh? He preaches, and everybody repents. And then the end's weird because it's like Jonah gets mad that they repented. Like, he's like, how dare you, God, you do what you said you were going to do? right? Even Jonah's the worst, but they, they repent. Now, there's a couple of unique things about this story and why Jesus is cluing in Jonah. One, they all knew the story of Jonah. It was an older story. It was dated far long before Jesus' time. 
But mainly, the, the main point about Jonah is that the worst of people, and they were Gentiles, right? They weren't even Jews. The worst of people repented without seeing a sign. They repented merely on uh, Jonah's like, prophecy, meaning like he's, he's, he's foretelling the truths of God. Repent, turn from your evil ways. They put on ashes and sackcloth and they repent, right? And they're just devastated. They didn't see Jonah be eaten by a fish in order to do that. They also themselves weren't eaten by a fish we as Christians today believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ from 2,000 years ago that none of us visibly saw, right? That's faith. And in this instance, he's saying nobody saw the physical sign, but their hearts were humbled enough to be able to receive the truth and repent. And your hearts are not there, and it doesn't matter how many signs you see. You don't want to leave your kingdom that you've built for my kingdom that completely flips everything upside down. So their, their heart here, and the, their religious leaders, though they knew all the answers, right, their, their hard heart was so hard that they weren't willing to repent. And one of the main questions that I pointed at everyone when we were talking about this in week 39 was this idea, because what I pulled out of that story was more, have any of you really wanted a sign from God and felt mad when he didn't answer, right? Or like you felt like you're losing faith, you want to see God reveal himself, right? Or... Um, you've just like, and I've, I've felt that before. I'm like, man, it's just really, really cool if you could just like do this thing that I'm praying for and I'd be like, praise God, you did it, amazing. But the, 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 que- the question that I pose that reminds ourselves of, of the, the root of the story is, what if our internal problem with God not giving us signs is less about our, our, our need to actually see something and more about the state of our heart and our willingness to accept how God decides to reveal himself? It wasn't that Jesus didn't do signs. It wasn't that he wasn't providing just this profound, beautiful kingdom teaching. It was that they didn't want to submit to it. And so no sign was going to change that because their hearts were not humble to the point of of repentance, which repentance is just being willing to acknowledge the way I'm going isn't good. I'm going to turn from it. And they weren't willing to do that, whether it was because they had money, whether it was because they had status or pride or influence, or they guarded their own morality and their own legalism and they could sleep at night because they thought, I did all the things that I need to do. And... Jesus is like, nah, you're not, you're not getting it at all. At this point, he's basically giving up on them. Now, he's not giving up on them, saying, like, Jesus' love can't reach the hardest heart it can, but he is in the trajectory of the story of Matthew. He is at the point now where he will only see them in light of rejection. And what I mean by that is if we look at the map here, uh, Jesus had went up to Tyre and Sidon. We, had, we talked about the Canaanite faith, the Canaanite woman's faith, and how that was hey, the gospel news through the house of Israel will reach all people. If you're a Gentile, which I am, we are able to receive it because of the trajectory of God's story. But then they come back down to Capernaum, and then this story, they're in a region like Magdala, which is just slightly west of Capernaum, but for lack of better terms, it's in Capernaum area. These religious leaders come up from Jerusalem, right? They're buddies for this trip, I guess. And then um, they attack Jesus, and then Jesus sails across to the north part near to Bethsaida, basically, which is where this next story takes place. But what's happening, this is sort of the last encounter that I would say is fairly um, mutual in that, like, they're testing Jesus and there's not this overly aggressive culture against him. But now, once he goes up to Caesarea Philippi, the north, and he comes back down, that's his final trip towards Jerusalem where he won't come out. So we're, we're starting this trip, and Matthew's doing this, you know, in mainly chronological order for the most part. He's doing this kind of showing, like, what do people think about Jesus? What do they think about his kingdom, his upside-down kingdom? And where is it going to lead? And this was the last chance, essentially, of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Before now, they are just become full, like, we're going to kill this guy. 
And then the next passage that we're, gonna, that we're going to, starting in verse um, 6 or 5, is the disciples. So transition from experts of the law to the disciples. This is in verse 5. When the disciples went to the other side, they forgot to take bread. So they're taking that trip across the lake, and they're going to go way up north. they got a long journey. And they're looking at each other, and they're like, oh, no, we forgot bread. Who was the bread guy? You had one job, you know? And uh, they're worried. Clearly, Jesus isn't worried. Jesus says in verse 6, watch out. Beware of the yeast, or some translations say leaven. It's the same thing. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, and we know, like, he's still reflecting on the story that was just there. They're more worried about uh, their bread. And verse 7, they begin to discuss among themselves, saying, it is because we brought no bread. I don't know about you. Are you like, man, they're just like, idiots. You know, like, I don't know if you're like, gosh, they just, come on. Uh, and what they're, what they're doing is, Matthew's doing this on purpose. He's going to give you three case studies of what people's opinions are of Jesus and how they can miss him and how they can be correct about who he is. The third one next week, spoiler, Peter will get it right. But before that, the experts blather around and mess it up, and the disciples blather around and mess it up. What the disciples are doing is different than the Pharisees and the, the experts. Because look at what Jesus says. When he learned of this, he said to them, you who have such little faith. Now, it's important why he's saying little faith. Why is he saying little faith? Like, they're, not, they're talking about, like, do we have bread or not? He's like, you guys have no faith. It doesn't seem to make sense, right? He would just say, you guys are so distracted. But the reason why he's saying no faith is because he is pushing their idea, the physical worry that they have, into a deeper, greater faith of him and what he will do for them. And that's why he says... Do you, uh, why are you arguing yourself, among yourselves about having no bread? Do you not understand? Don't you remember? And we're remembering these two stories we read over the last few weeks. Five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? You took 12 baskets and I hand them to you. You fed all the people and then you brought them back. Or what about the seven loaves for the 4,000 men? And, and once again, 5,000 men, 4,000 men. It's like 35,000 people. And how many baskets you took up? How could you not understand that? I was not speaking to you about bread but beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he had not told them to be on guard against the yeast in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, this, is, this, uh, this story is a classic illustration of just the, the physical, external worry that's right in your face in your life. Whether it's like literal food, or you're like, oh my gosh, what am I going to eat tonight? Right? I'm on a diet or I don't have any money. I need to figure it out. Or you're like, what am I going to do tomorrow? Am I going to go to this party? Am I going to work? I don't feel well. Right? It's like worrying about all these things that are just kind of hitting you right in the face in the moment. And Jesus and his disciples are playing this game. I don't know if you've ever played this game. You like both get a word and you have to try to get the same word like in four guesses. And they're, I feel like they're playing that. They're both talking about bread, but very different ideas. The disciples are like physical bread and Jesus is like evil ideologies. Right? They're not in the same category. And Jesus' heart is clearly um, thinking through the reality of evil ideologies affecting everyone. Because think about it, these Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're like the higher-ups of the religious community. And most people that were common Jews didn't like them because they were giving them exhaustive rules that were just ridiculous to follow, right? It'd be the same as if like, we lived in America and our taxes were like 90% of our income. Like, it would just be like, we can't do this. Like, I'm, I have no money, Right? And that was kind of how it felt, the sacrifices, the rules, the regulations, or the social 
like stigma if you didn't do these things. And so most people who are common Jews didn't like them, but if they were to get to that point, they would become like them. That was assumed, right? Well, if I get there, like then I'll, you know, I'll do all that stuff and I'll be okay with it. But they, they, they knew that, Jesus knew that these small amounts of people had this massive impact on the greater Jewish community. And that's why Jesus is talking about this idea of leaven or yeast. And so there's really, there's really three like, facts that we can just pull from this story practically. The first one is that yeast, we know that Jesus says yeast is the corrupt leader's ideologies. That's what the yeast is. The second one is that you only need a small amount of yeast to infect an entire loaf of bread. If you've ever, anybody ever baked homemade bread? Anybody? It's, it's, it's work, I'll tell you what. You have a lot of thankfulness when you go to Kroger and you get a $2 loaf of bread. You're like... But bread, when you put just like the small amount of yeast in it, the whole loaf is affected by it, right? The whole thing pops up. The third thing is that yeast causes the actual substance, the, like the, the kneading of the dough, to puff up which I think is just so telling of what is going on in, this, in, in the um, Pharisees' lives. You know a good rule of thumb when you're packing groceries, you never put the bread at the bottom, right? If you do that, rookie mistake, you will have flatbreads. You will not have bread, okay? That was a funny joke, okay? I guess because it's flatbread because it is flat, but it's also, anyways. So you will, but bread is, is literally just air, like, yes, it is bread, but when you have a small, like, lump of dough and then it turns into this, you have to think about, how did that happen? Air, okay? So when you're eating, you're eating fluffs of air, okay? But you know that when you smash a loaf of bread, not too hard, it's, or it's not that hard to do, right? In the same way, the Pharisees were puffing up themselves. Their, their ideologies were giving way to rising this external bread that had no actual, like, grit and, and, and stiffness and like strength to it. It was just all air and fluffy and it was all external. It was whatever you could see on the outside. I remember one time when I was younger, I just thought about this. Uh, Allison, my sister, we had a loaf of bread and she hated the crust, as do I hate the crust. And I remember we were were, uh, cutting into the loaf of bread for dinner and we were cutting one side and we didn't realize the butt of the other side had been cut off. And we cut into it and when we pick up the piece of bread, there was like a giant hole out of the middle. (laughs) Allison had... I'm pretty sure it's Allison. She'll have to uh, confirm this with me. She's not here. But she had reached her entire hand in the loaf of bread and just pulled out all the inside of the bread. And I was like, smart play. Smart play. <laughs> just glue the cap back on. No one will ever know. Right? But it's, it's silly, but it's like, that's what the Pharisees were like. They, on the outside, like nice crisp edges, like a full loaf of bread, and then you get to the inside, and you're like, these guys are the worst. Right? But most people couldn't. How do you evaluate the heart? Well, the heart wasn't a reality at this time because it was so set on just what you do, right? The external. And so Jesus is like, no, no, here's how you evaluate the heart, right? If, you're, if you want to murder someone, even anger within your own mind and heart is murder. If you, if you even lust after someone, that's adultery against your spouse or, or could be spouse, right? And he starts to dive, dive deeper into to showing you the heart and what it means. And, and the Pharisees, we know, their hearts were hardened from just the reality of Jesus and his kingdom. But the disciples had their own issue, and the disciples are not even able to track with this evil ideology because they're so consumed in the present, which is just silly. I mean, Jesus just fed 35,000 people with, like, 12 loaves of bread. And they, they, like, didn't even just see it. They, like, handed the bread to people. And they're like, what is happening? How do I have all this bread, right? And then, like, a couple weeks later, they're like, I don't know if he, we forgot bread. We're in trouble. I don't know how we're going to do it. None of them's like, you know what? I think we're going to be all right. You know, I think we're going to be okay. They're worrying. 
And in the same way, we're exactly the same. God, you've been praying this prayer. God has been faithful in this area. You feel like God's really blessing you, and then the next day something happens, and you, you owe your car breaks, and you owe a couple thousand dollars, and you're like, I'm not going to survive this. I'm going to, you know, the world's over. And some of you are like, whatever, I'm not worried about car failure, but like, let's just say you get sick, and you're like, I'm not feeling well, and I have no idea how bad this could be, and it's serious, and you know, like we're just a day away from just completely being just like them and focusing so much on the bread that we're missing what God is truly doing in our lives. We're like the guy on the rooftop who had three chances in light of God rescuing him, but we didn't like how it looked, right? We didn't feel like it was the way we wanted it to be done. And both of these camps of people, the, the experts and the disciples, both miss Jesus in a beautiful moment. And think about if Jesus was up here speaking, and let's just say he was teaching something about the kingdom. We're all sitting there, and we're like, yep, yep, yep. And then at the end, he's like, all right, what did I talk about? And we're just like, honestly, man, I'm stressed. Like, my dishes are so high up in my sink right now. That would be how silly that would be. Like, are you kidding me? Like, Jesus is right here, and you're worried about your dishes. Like, dishes will be okay. Just throw them all away. It's far more worth it to listen than just to worry about your dishes, right? Or, or like whenever Martha and Mary, there's a story where Jesus is coming into the house and Martha's like, I got to get the house ready. Like, I got to light some candles and put out some charcuterie, right? And, and Mary's like, nah, I'm just going to sit here and listen to his words, right? And Jesus, who does, he, who does he admonish? Who does he encourage? He's like, Mary, because she cares deeply about my presence here now and what it looks like. And these small things, whatever, right? Jesus is doing, in Matthew, right, God using Matthew, is doing a really beautiful thing here. He's creating two ways that we can miss Jesus, but then the third way, Peter finally gets it right. Now, I don't want to spoil next week, right, because I still want you to come, but uh, Peter will get it right next week. He'll profess, you know, Jesus will say, who does everybody think I am? What do they think I'm about? And they're like, wrong, 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 wrong. And then, Peter, and then he's like, who do you say I am, right? And Peter's like, you're the son of God, yes. And Peter says it right. But then if you know, like, he keeps screwing up, runs away from Jesus, abandons him, does a lot of, like, unfortunate things, right? So there's this tension in our lives that we can know the right thing, right? But once external circumstances surround us, we just kind of abandon what we truly know, right? It's, it's like everything is so fixated on this, this moment. And in some ways, this is a teaching about anxiety, I think, because it's so present in our lives of what is going on that we can't possibly imagine, right, these truths that we know and believe, right? And so on that, that's one. And then on the other side is the Pharisees where it's like our hearts are so captivated by ourselves and our own kingdom that we can't, we will, we will do everything we can to take Jesus and what he says and filter it through our own bias and presuppositions so that it fits nicely into our kingdom. And we learn that Jesus' kingdom and your kingdom, you can't stand in both. You got to abandon yours to join his. It doesn't work. That's exhausting. That's called like being like a hypocritical Christian is standing in both, and it's exhausting because you're constantly wearing a mask. But as, as we kind of wrap this all up and close, I, I think that Matthew and what we respond to here is we, we, have, to, we have to put ourselves in these two, these two groups. And we have to see, maybe you resonate with one or the other. Maybe you're like, oof, both. Get me, that's double, right? Sign me up. I'm, I'm not doing too well. Um, but as we close, I want us to reflect on these two because I think that the stories themselves are short and they're pretty to the point, but the, the implications on these are radically powerful. Because let's say you're, you walk in and you're like, well, I love Jesus. I've been a Christian for a while or whatever. And I, you know, I'm not perfect, but Jesus is calling the evil the yeast, right? And the small amount of yeast infects the entire loaf. So if there's not small areas of your life that you're not willing to acknowledge or to give over to Jesus or surrender or 
to just take an honest look at why you're doing it or why you're worried or whatever, it's going to infect the rest of your life. It's the same reason why wealth consumes people. Few people will wake up after they said, oh, I won't let wealth consume me and wake up the next day and are immediately greedy. And, right? It's slowly after a while they start to think, yeah, I deserve this. Yeah, I made this myself. Yeah, I have money. Yeah, I don't have to worry. And then before you know it, you're this stingy, wealthy, greedy person who makes all your decisions based on that. And the small amount of leaven or yeast in the beginning was the most important thing to acknowledge in light of where you're going to go. So for us, this is a pretty humbling moment, I think, as we reflect, because there are things that we are holding on to that we're either in the present, your dishes, right, or your laundry, or pride in your heart that you're not willing to acknowledge. And so I want to invite Jerry up for a second as we do a time of reflection. We... We offer reflection time every Sunday, and uh, there's a couple different things you can do. Obviously, I have the questions uh, up here, which Ryan will put up there. Uh, we have the Lord's Supper, so if you're a follower of Jesus, this is a tangible response to the reminder that you can't do it on your own, that you needed Jesus' sacrifice. And then we also have people in the back who would love to pray for you. Really, anybody could pray for you. Uh, and we'll give you some time to do that. What I would say, and what I have said I've done personally, is... I sit down and I, I reflect through these things and really ask myself, right, like where am I resonating in these two or both? What does that mean in light? Like what do I have to surrender and let go of? The heart of repentance is you, you have to turn away from something. You can't just keep holding it with you. Like you can't be half turned, right? It's a, it's a, it's a 180 turn. So just, just giving that to the feet of Jesus, praying through what does it look like for me to surrender that? And then reminding yourself this is what I need is the, the body and the blood of Jesus because that's the true ultimate freedom that Jesus is getting to and that Matthew is reminding all Jews when in the next, next section it's like, you are God with us. You have become flesh so that we might live in freedom and eternity with you. So we'll give you some time. You can take that at any point on your own. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.